Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I can't control other people's actions, but I can control my actions and I control how I show up. And how I show up is going to constantly be whether I'm here today on a podcast or in the dark. 4.30 a.m. working out right in the garage or running. I'm going to consistently show up as me and hope to put forward that this version of me can be an example of what can be done when you set your mind to it. And it's more the narrative of saying that life shouldn't be easy because if you constantly are seeking the easy, then it's going to be a hard life. However, if you go out there and push yourself constantly, you'll find the hard things that come up in life are a lot easier than you thought they'd be because you or always put yourself in a position to constantly be testing yourself for that next part that comes up to you. How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Jason, Jason Yerusi, who is someone who figured out how to be an entrepreneur. Now, this is on the heels of last week's episode, which was also about entrepreneurship. And the reason I'm packing these episodes back to back is to give you opportunities to learn different ways to figure out what it is for you. Not everybody is going to be an entrepreneur in the same way. Not everybody is going to have the same mindset towards entrepreneurship, but it is important for you to recognize your path to freedom. We're definitely in unprecedented times. We're dealing with so much uncertainty. Why not find different ways for you to potentially learn and pick up a skill? Remember, there's a difference between a skill and a talent. Skill is something you actively work on. A talent is something you already have. So, Here's to you developing more skills. Here's to you adding to your financial wellness. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Jason Yarusi. And we're going to be talking about building wealth. Now, what Jason does is it's quite incredible. He does this with his wife, and they have been active real estate syndicators and real estate investors for for years to come, they hold a multifamily investment firm with over 1,400 units valued at 160 million acquired since 2016. And we are going to dive into what exactly that takes. We're going to dive into the idea of building wealth in a recession environment and how to recession-proof your mindset, as well as recession-proof your investment strategies. And then I think we're also just going to dive into just what it takes to be a business person today's world, especially with so many competing things demanding your attention. And I'm very, very excited to have Jason break all these down for us. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Pleasure is mine. The first question I want to ask you has to do with you and your why. I was watching a video on your website and I noticed that kept coming up, this idea of why purpose, why purpose, why purpose. So I'm curious, what is your why? You know, if you backtrack probably a little over a decade ago, Peely and I were bartenders in New York City. 
there's a point in life where you either just run the route that's in front of you or you start choosing your route. Kimmy and I met in 2003. I actually walked into a bar for which she was managing because I was a friend brought me out there to do some construction work, right? And that was our first introduction to each other. It took us about almost nine years to become a couple. And throughout that time, when we finally looked at each other and found that way in life, it was that point where we were on this hamster wheel of constantly doing service jobs. So I opened and sold a brewery, opened uh, some restaurants, uh, you know, ran a bunch of restaurants, purely the same thing. There became a point we're now together. We knew we were going to start a family. Peely was pregnant with our first kiddo and we're working to all hours of the night. And there's a point where you make a choice to say, okay, this is what I'm going to do, or I need to do something else. I'm going to get in the position to be able to control my day, to be able to control my outcome. That was that point, having kids, knowing we wanted a different path so we could set the narrative, not only for ourselves, but how our kids can view the future. That started to create a lot of shifts in our life. Hurricane Sandy happened, decimated the East Coast. My dad has a construction company that's really targeted towards flood zone properties. So we actually left the bar world, moved out to New Jersey. My brother was working for us at the time, did the same thing, came with us. And we started helping dad now do his business. So here we are going from one service business to another service business. And you know, it was great to help dad. But in the same front, we were constantly in front of activities that we had to do to get, right? So if you don't show up at a bar, you're not getting tips. If you don't show up for a construction project, you're not getting paid in construction. So we constantly were in front of you know shows like real estate and all these other things. And we thought that could be the viable solution. So the first thing we did is we went out, you know, pregnant now with our second child to go out there and get her real estate license. And we started flipping and wholesaling houses. So we started doing that. We started thinking that part, but we're doing the activity of construction. And now we start compiling on top of that, all these other active real estate things where you have to go out there, you're either swinging the hammer or basically running projects, all this very, very busy work. So we're laying on busy over busy. And it came to us to find someone who was investing out of state. That was the aha moment where we saw them and we said, what are you doing? They said, well, we're buying these rentals out and they were buying something called a turnkey rental where it was basically fixed up. Everything was packaged for them. They would just buy it and get a return from it. Well, we saw that and the model was interesting, but we started seeking out people who could find distressed properties. And so we find distressed properties, we put together contractors, we put together property managers and then get them out and leased up. And next thing we know, we're getting checks in the mail. That was that first aha moment where we couldn't actively put ourselves in position because these houses are a thousand miles away to slow down the process because it gets limited. Everything that happens in life gets limited by the amounts of you. There's only so much time. And if you constantly are doing all the activities, well, there's going to be a stop where you are going to prevent your success going forward. That started to be very successful for us. However, the scalability of that, buying a bunch of duplexes or triplexes around in different markets, we knew it wasn't going to be able to make a big enough dent to allow us to get to that part of controlling our day. So I came upon uh, someone who was buying large apartment buildings on podcasts just like this. That was that light bulb moment that I said, I got it. So instead of having two units, we could have 100 units and we could treat it like a business, which we had already always fared well with, right? When you can go into a bandage business and improve it because a large apartment business is basically like a business that you can go into to see, okay, how can I improve this apartment building? Like, where is it failing? Whether it's on the management side or the property side. So we sold everything off 2015, 2016 of those smaller properties. And it went all in to buying large multifamily and acquired our first building, which was a 94 unit apartment building. And that was in May of 2017. 
Okay. It's quite the journey, sir. So I have a few things I want to peel through there. So someone's going to be hearing you say multifamily a lot. Can you break that down initially? Sure. So typically there's residential and commercial multifamily. Residential is basically a two unit. So you, it could be a duplex, right? Two family, three family, or four family. And then commercial multifamily is anything five apartments or basically five doors or bigger, right? So it could be five doors, could be 2000 units, right? Could be anything in between. So we typically look for apartment buildings that have at least 75 units. So it would be 75 different tenants at least or up to about 200. That's a sweet spot for us. The reason I wanted to start off there is obviously a lot of people who are interested in real estate right now have been hearing this is, you know, it's not necessarily a buyer's market. And someone might be thinking, should I just get my single or should I get a multifamily? Well, I listen to this investor. They say, get your own house. I listen to that investor. They say, no, multifamily is better so that you can then pay off the other thing. And so how do people even decide what they need to do in today's economy so that they don't, you know, just go by whatever anyone is saying on the internet without doing enough research? Ultimately, it's going to come down to you and your needs. What we did was preemptive for us noting where we wanted to go. You could buy a house today and put down a 15 year mortgage and get it paid off with just a tenant and barely making any rent and be in a very good position, you know, 15 years from now. Right. And if that's your direction and you have income that you just want to have something to sustain it right there and something for a future generation, that could be a great plan for you. What we like about multifamily and where this really stands in all times, right? Multifamily is one of the safest real estate investment classes tried and tried and true. Back in 2007, it had the, one of the lowest default rates, right? So single family had a very high, you know, so 12, 13%. We had less than 1% default rate with multifamily. Today, even during COVID, it was the darling, right? We saw leasing and we saw office get massively hurt because people started working from home, but everybody still needed a place to live, right? So multifamily continued to accelerate. It does well during inflationary times, right? Because although now we see that things are costing more, well, it's hard to build multifamily. Over the course of the last you know, decade or even this decade in itself, for housing units, we need to build about almost 16 million housing units over this decade. On pace, we're going to build about 11 million. So what that means is that we're going to be 5 million housing units short. We haven't actually met the year-on-year demand since 2007 because everybody got burned, all these developers building, so they basically pulled back. Now, today, you hear that, you say, well, I'm just going to go build a lot of housing. Well, it's so hard to be able to find the right area to be able to build to that scale Plus, it's now costing more, and you have supply supply constraints, and you have labor shortages. So you compile that, now your existing asset is now worth more because to replace it, it would cost that much more. So when you look at these components and you bring multifamily onto the table here, think about what's safer. If you have a 100-unit building or a single family, you may say, well, oh, man, 100 units seems so big. It must be more risky. But when you think about the overall economics here, in that single family house, you have one tenant. So you're either 100% or you're 0%. That's all there is. You're either occupied or not. 100 unit building, say I have five vacancies, well, I still have 95 tenants that can show up to be able to pay the rent that can now cover my expenses, that can cover my mortgage. I have the opportunity to take advantage of a lot of others' economies of scales. I can get appreciation where the market can hopefully improve, but I can also force forward appreciation through the renovations I do. 
You have the ability to capitalize on a lot of things that are built out for us, like depreciation and tax advantages. You have the leverage of your renters basically paying down your mortgage. And then you have the opportunity to seize on just portfolio diversification, right? You can diversify a lot across a big apartment building where the lever on a single family house, everything costs more, right? You have one roof, right? So if that roof goes, well, you have to have that one source of income paying for it, where you could have hundreds of tenants paying for that roof on that other building. You have now not able to treat it like a business. So every time you know a toilet you know, breaks or something else, you have to hire the plumber to go out there and see what the problem is and then hopefully assess it. And if they don't have the parts, go to the store and then come back and fix it, right? So that can be very costly per unit. Where for a multifamily property, you can hire people that can work at the property. So they can be taking care of deferred maintenance as it's routinely going to force forward the value of the property. And you got a full-time leasing person there who can now handle collections, handle vacancies, handle leasing, right? So you're not going to be running point to point. So instead of treating it like a mom and pop, you can treat it more like a business. Now, both sides of the coin can be very viable for that typical person here. But you have to say to yourself, do I want to make small changes or big changes, right? You'll be able to make small changes with a single family house, but it's going to take longer and it's going to expose you to more risk. Even if you talk to banks, would a bank see me at more of a risk if I was buying a single family or a two family home, three family home or a hundred unit? Well, to them, they're saying, well, that two or three family if, you know, say the two family has one tenant vacant, well, now it's 50% occupied and maybe they won't be able to cover their expenses and their mortgage. And some of that money will have to come out of me as the owner's pocket. So now it's going to be back on me. How risky is Jason as an owner compared to the 100 unit building? Well, subjectively, I might be able to go down to you know, 75, 70, 68% occupied, 65% occupied, depending before it becomes trouble for me to be able to pay my mortgage and pay my expenses. So the bank looks at this and says, well, this asset, because they're looking at the asset first, is a much safer investment for us. I love the breakdown because one of the things that I've, I've been studying is real estate. And it's interesting here in the pros and cons, and it really does depend on where you are. I do often hear this, though, with multifamilies is, is that fear of maybe the cost adding up because you, you talked about it. Some people will end up seeing themselves as landlords or landlady, whether they are or not. And then you have to pay. There's a fear of tax and there's a fear of repairs and fear of people management and people saying, well, where can I learn all these skills? How do I know what to take out in terms of a loan or business? And who do I lean on as a form of community? Is there such a community out there that actually does walk people through the step-by-step process of building multifamilies portfolios? Sure. I appreciate that. So I'm in Tennessee now. I grew up in uh, New Jersey. People and I met in New York City. We started a meetup back in New Jersey many years ago because there wasn't viable communities out there like this. And we were finding that everything was just real estate overall. So it was tax liens or it was wholesaling or it was flipping or sometimes one week multifamily. And then the next week after that could be Airbnb. It was all over the place, which creates so much confusion for the investor. Noting that we wanted to just do multifamily, we wanted to create a community that could really talk to that. And so when we moved down here, we started working with uh, some other partners and we started a mastermind called Seven Figure Multifamily because it gave us the opportunity to help other investors follow the same platform, the same strategy we did. We understood very early on that it was going to take a team to be able to do this. And so you can do this very successfully as yourself or as a team because it's a bigger project, which means that you can have more hats 
and more people that can fill those roles and each of us can be on our own path to success. So we started Seven Figure Multifamily. We have about 75 businesses in there now that are going out there just crushing things. I mean, we last month, we've had a 10 unit, a 31 unit, 24 unit, 60 unit, 210 unit, 104 unit. These are all the size of apartment buildings that people in the mastermind have now gone under contract and gone to closing on. And these are very awesome things to see because, you know, months ago they were just finding their way of where they want to go. But you don't have to come in there and do the 100 unit. You can come in there and do an eight unit, six unit, right? It's taking that step from where you are to where you want to be. We help provide those steps to get you on the right road and to get you to your goals. And the reason I set up that question that way is because we're going to put the link in the show notes, sevenfiguremultifamily.com, that's seven with the number itself. You have this team and what they do is they help you scale. They also help you understand the ins and outs and all the things that you would consider risky or things that they can help you walk through, where to find the properties, what properties to look for, who to talk to, who to look out for, and all those things that maybe a compilation of a bunch of YouTube videos might not be able to effectively do for you if you don't know what to look for. And I think in life, whether you're an entrepreneur or someone who's trying to better his, her, themselves, the idea of finding direction from the right people who've been there before is one of the best ways to get a leg up in any industry. And so seven figure multifamily.com will be definitely provided for people in the show notes. I'm hoping that it does give some people insight into multiple layers of income streams. You know, what I've found is one of the most powerful things about masterminds. When we first started out, we were able to align ourselves with some other people that were doing something that we wanted to do, right? By large multifamily. And mostly you can get the steps. I need to find a building. I need to go get a loan and build it, have money to go buy the building, then make it better, right? We can get those steps, but it's those little in-betweens that come up, right? Those little parts, you know, paperwork or talking about different filings or what kind of lawyers or or paperwork do we need, right? Those little in-betweens that can sideline you because they're not easily researchable, right? That you don't know how to ask the right question to get the right answer. And when you can surround yourself with other like-minded people that are out there on the same journey, it keeps you on track without allowing you to get too far off base because the answers are all within and we're all on that same learning path going forward. I agree 100%. I want to stay on this idea of property. So the call for me directive marketing, uh, Tori, I believe, and there was something that she pointed out as a potential subject that intrigued me is how to maximize income on property with effective asset management. I was just curious to understand what that is in essence. Just think of anything when you're buying a business, right? You have to think you have the two options, right? You can either increase revenue or you can decrease expenses. Typically, you can do both, but you're typically going to drive on one. So you want to find a way that you can create the most value for the asset that you have, right? Because if you just go out there and just throw a blanket approach, some properties are going to work better in some ways and some properties are going to work better in other ways. So the way we handle this here is that we hire third-party management, right? So that third-party management, so in each state where we own property, we have a property manager. That property manager does all the work, day-to-day work, right? So they do the day-to-day operations. So dealing with work orders, collecting rents, you know, leasing out units where we handle the work of creating the plan, providing the plan, and then helping the team to implement the plan and pivot as we need throughout the plan. 
So for asset management, we are looking for ways that we can make this property conform to the market and also accelerate the performance of the property. So some simple things here is that if you're buying a property and then there's three or four properties surrounding this property and all the other properties except pets, charge application fees, charge late fees, and you're not doing that, right? Well, you can simply say that if you come in and do that, you're probably going to be pretty successful because the other properties are already doing that. And it's lost income that you're not doing on your property here. You can do other things here where we once, we've actually done this a few times, but the first property we brought, the 94 unit, we went in there and changed out all the toilets. Well, it was a 1971 building. All the toilets were 3.8 gallon toilets. We changed them to low E flush toilets, changed out the faucets and the aerators, or changed out the, uh, the, the faucets and the shower heads to add aerators, right? Doing this and going in there and correcting some leaks in our property cut down on our water bill by 30%. Now, you think about that and say, okay, great. So now that potentially makes you more money. However, when you value commercial buildings, it's based on the revenue stream. It's based on your bottom line income. And that income is maximized by a cap rate, right? The cap rate is the assessment of value, the return that you would get if you basically purchase properties in cash. So having our water bill decrease by 30% made the property worth $350,000 more just by changing toilets, right? And so when you think about that, right? And you say, okay, well, if I had a single family home, if I went in there and changed out the toilet, well, no one's going to pay me $350,000 more. They probably, won't, they probably won't even pay me much more at all, right? Because they're going to come in there and look at the property, either not like the paint color or assess it based on comparable properties in the area. But my property can be worth much more than the next door property because it can produce more income. So it'd be like buying two like-kind businesses. So if you're buying two businesses, right, and they're both restaurants, and the, the one has a 5X multiple on just what their bottom line income is compared to the next door property is going to be worth excessively more value because it's creating a bigger revenue stream, right? So when we look at these buildings, how can we create more value in the building? And it can go either, you can add income streams, right? So we could add in trash valet where we come, you know, we charge you to come pick up your trash twice a week. We could add in pet fees. We could add in a laundry where we can get laundry revenue, or we can add in the cable contract where we can get a discount payment from the cable company and then go provide the tenants a lower fee from which they would pay, but still creates more value for us. Or we can go in and cut down expenses, just that we talked about the toilet. Or we may not need two maintenance people. We might only need one. Or we can do other improvements to the building. Maybe where uh, the windows are the original single pane windows, they've lost our R value, change all the windows. So maybe the economics or just the efficiency of the building gets better. We could do a number of different things to lower the expenses as well to make the property perform better, right? So when you do these things, you start tying together, it's not subjectively about the color of the building. Right. It's so that, you know, when you get to a house, it's coming up and like someone may walk into a house and just not get past the carpet. Right. Like I just can't buy this house the carpet, even though it's like an 800, 400 hour fix. They can't get past that where that is not the main driver in commercial real estate. It's based on the bottom line. And that's how you can basically transcend what the value of these buildings will be. It's so fascinating just understanding the layers, because you know, whenever I study real estate or even just dabble in it. It's not broken down this way. You, you're told one thing, but you don't realize how just a, a simple decision you can make and can ultimately lead to a lifetime of trouble <laughs> or a lifetime of blessings. And it really strikes me as an ability to be able to strike partnership 
with the right people and to build trust and then to leverage that community, which kudos to you on build, developing the community you have there. But you, you have a lifetime partnership with your wife on a personal level as well as on the professional level. On a personal level, there are many books and shows dedicated to how to develop that type of partnership. Some of those would advise you not to get into business with your significant other because it could lead to another cans of worms there. But you, you don't seem to be going down that path. It seems like you and Pill have found a way to strike that balance where you have the right amount of partnership at home as well as in the business. So what is the secret? Well, the secret is spend nine years working together before you become a couple. Oh, okay. Don't, don't get, don't get. <laughs> there you go. So now like, you know, it took her, you know, we were both in our own phases. You know, we both were on our own, our own, our own routes, right, for many years. And, and sometimes it takes time. But Peel and I met working together. So on that front, we had to learn to be a couple. We knew how to work together. We had to transition to understand how to be a couple together, right? And so most of the times, when we get this question a lot, is that I'm doing all these things. I'm trying to really just, you know, make a life for us. And like my husband or my wife just doesn't get it, right? And where I find usually to disconnect is that, we assume we know the answer without actually asking the question. And so I'm working 23 hours a day. I'm trying to create this you know, massive wealth for us in real estate. And well, have you asked your wife if that's what she wants? She may want you home for dinner to be around the kids and be present. So most of the disconnect in couples and relationships and just working together is not communicating to making sure that we're on the same path for the same goals. Because we both may think we're doing the best thing. I've been in scenarios, right? I think I'm doing the right thing, but because I haven't asked, well, this person has a whole, they're on their own lane thinking they're doing the right thing. And that's what the disconnect is. We both think we're doing the right thing. However, because we haven't communicated, we're going in opposite directions. Is that idea of you need to, Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Check for understanding and also just really create a safe space for any form of dialogue to be communicated. Insecurities, fears, desires, hopes. And then how do you work through all those things when, when you say, well, I'm making this decision. I know you want to do this. Let's see if we can work together. And, you know, there's things like that, which can actually set up your, either barriers or propellers, I find. That's a great way to put it. Because you think about this is that even going in, like, just say, you say, you know, spouse, couples, right? But even partnerships in business, right? The hardest thing to do is have the conversation that's uncomfortable in the beginning. The best you can do to do is have that conversation. That's going to be the easiest conversation you do. Because if you don't have it, the hardest thing you're going to do is trying to figure it out halfway down the road when both of your right ends because you both assumed 
that the other one was supposed to do X, right? Because you weren't clear on what the divide is. With the co-founder relationship, I've had co-founders who it wasn't gelling correctly, but it was based on an assumption. Maybe it's you were good friends and you thought, oh, of course, I'm just, I'll just get him or her that opportunity and we'll work together. But then you realize you don't have the same work ethic. You don't have the same values. They don't see the same, see the problem you want to solve the same way, but you figured that out too late. And then you've maybe shelved out enough equity <laughs> where it becomes a battle <laughs> to get that out. So it, to your point where you said you knew your wife in a work capacity long before it turned into romance, maybe that might be an unintended consequence there, but you knew each other's work styles and, and what to do in that sense and the tendency. So there was that trust already there. It's like friends is, is one of those things, right? So when, we, when we're your friends, you, you want to partner with friends because you think that's the right part, but you're friends because you're both like-minded in your own same way, right? So typically you both may have similar strengths, right? Maybe you're both good at marketing, but you're like, okay, let's go into business together, but no one's good at sales, right? Or no one's good at, you know, no one's good at the business side, right? And so you're still lacking that piece because we weren't honest with ourselves. And Peely and I, you know, for many years, I'm more the bulldog, right? I'm more the driver. And, and that's why asset management really trends well, underwriting really trends well. And she's great with, with relations, right? So she's really good with investor relations, with talking to people with formulating with marketing, right? And so we both have those strengths here that tie together well. Right. And so she helps moderate me because I'm forging ahead and she'll make me pause to make sure that, that we're going in the right path. Where at the same time, I will sometimes push the needle because I know it's the right decision and, and it will take her a moment that she'll have to think about it to decide that it is the right course. Right. So there's that plug and play where you can have push and pull at the same time that can both be beneficial because it allows you not to get too far off the deep end, but also pull you to take action. Now, you said investor relations. So, Pill does that. So, you, I'm guessing you all have raised quite a bit of money in your businesses. Could you speak to that? Because I don't think you've asked for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, good. Yeah. So, how, how do you raise money without asking for money? <laughs> great to be here today. First time connecting, right? If I came here today and just told you, I just told you and said, I have this great opportunity, right? And so, are you ready to invest today? And I'm closing next week. Well, two parts. I put you on the spot giving you a lot of information that you haven't had fully time to, of course, take in and think about. Now I'm asking you for money. So you are now having to commit to a sizable amount of money. And two, I need the money. So the pressure is on me to say, I need your money. Give me it. Let's go. Right. So when you do that, you put a lot of strains, not only in a relationship, but on both parties, because you put us both in, a, in a positions to not make good choices because you may say no, which is great, right? All power to you, but you might miss out on a great investment. Or you may say yes and not feel good about it because you haven't had the full time to really think about it, to say, okay, I'm really so excited. I love what's happening because you feel pressured into it. And the same front, I have the stress of needing the money, right? So I may be pushing an investment because I need your capital, but I'm not truly doing the best thing for the investor. So Peely and I, early on, we went out and talked to our network to let them know what we were doing. Because here we are, you know, we're bartenders, construction, flipping houses, and now we're buying apartment buildings. What we had is we had a track record that we always showed up and were committed to our task. However, it was a new space. So we had to go out there to our network to tell them what we were doing, to explain to them about why we loved this asset class, why we were doing this, why we were investing, you know, a thousand miles away in Louisville, Kentucky, why we are looking after these large apartment buildings, not small ones, but big ones, and how it was going to work. Like we were going to raise capital through something called syndication, right? Where we raise money from investors along with ours. We buy these buildings and we're going to do this 
so we can buy the larger buildings to get economies of scale, right? And so we would tell them about it and then tell them the, the potential benefits, right? They can have cash flow, they can have equity, they can get tax advantages, right? To allow them to understand what was happening. And then we would give them the opportunity to go back, think about it, read over. We made a mock deal of the deal we were going to find to look over it and then come back with questions. And for there, we were able to get investors to commit to us. And of course, they weren't giving us money, but tell us that they were interested for 25000 or 50000 right, of a deal that we didn't have yet. It was the avatar of a deal that we were presenting, but we were able to tell them about what we wanted to do. And then they were able to reinforce what we were able to do by committing to a future deal. So you do this enough and we would have, say, a million dollars of people that were interested to do this when we got the deal. So five, six months later, when we did find that deal that we were showing a mock deal of, right, the, the avatar of the deal, we find a real deal. We went back to those investors and were seemingly able to raise $700,000 in a day because we had done the legwork before of not pushing investors into a deal, but giving them the opportunity to understand if this could be a benefit for them, right? So, and it empowers you because if you're going out there to buy real estate and you don't know where the money's coming from, well, you're on the other side of the coin is now you're uncomfortable because you're making offers for which you don't know if you can fill, right? So it gave us the best power to be in the best position when we did find that opportunity. What you're describing sounds like what you call in entrepreneurship, we call this the minimum viable product, a product that, you know, with enough features to attract the early adopted customers. It sounds like your avatar served as that idea. This is what you will be investing in. This is what it looks like. And obviously your expertise you and your partners was enough something where someone built trust. So you went and got exactly what they said. And it even allows them to decide to right? So you say, well, if you get me this, as you say it is, I have no problem spending this because I can see the value. Yeah, it's fun to put it like that. But yeah, so I don't hear it put like that much, but you're exactly right. Right. And so you're putting it out there to see the offering, you see the interest in the product here. But it also allows you to go back and find the product because you know that have you have the money that can help lead you to acquire it. You can apply this to any other thing. You know, an artist, for example, who might get pre-orders, an author get pre-orders based on whatever trust he, she, they have garnered from readers or users. You know, hey, you provide me enough entertainment. I love it all the time. I'm going to flood in without even knowing what it sounds like or what the book is going to be about. But based on that, so there's that element as well. I like to just break it down this way because the audience always is very entrepreneurial and they're in the, the late 20s, early 30s and early 40s as well. And the pandemic, I believe, really broke down a lot of things. It gave people access to sit down with a lot of thoughts and really reevaluate their values and value systems. Some people all the time will email me and they'll say, well, what do I do now? Where's the right market? Where's the right opportunity? So you've heard things from crypto to NFTs to real estate. And I've heard a lot of multifamilies as it relates to the United States. I've heard Tennessee a lot as a potential spot for New Orleans, but I don't know. I'm not the expert. Where are the current hubs? I currently live in New York. You said you were used to be in New York and New Jersey. I'm not sure New York is necessarily the best place right now for multifamily places, multifamily investments, but I'm curious with your expertise, where are you seeing the market trend towards? So you can win in any market and you can, it depends on the investor, right? So 15 months ago, New York was dead, right? Or, oh, no one's ever going to come back to New York, right? Yeah, people were saying that. Yeah, they were. Yep. Now it's less than 1% vacancy and rents are up 29% in the last six months, right? So New York never dies. But the same front, like there's always subservience to the demand of the market, right? So you have to talk. However, 
it's a much more expensive market, right? So you have to look at the different drivers of what's important to you. For us, we broke down a number of pieces that were going to be important to us. We wanted a metropolitan statistical area. So like we have Nashville and then we have the surrounding cities make up the, the metropolitan statistical, statistical area. So we wanted a city that had at least 250,000 people, right? So it wasn't going to be 10 people in the city and we need everybody to live in their apartment building to be occupied. We wanted job growth. So seemingly job growth, right? And we wanted job diversity, meaning that there was a number of employers there. There wasn't like a steel town or it was, wasn't one employer that if something bad happened to that employer, that it would hurt not only our asset, but hurt hold the city overall. We wanted population growth, right? So stable population growth, two, three, four percent, more people coming than going. We wanted to have a supply constraint, right? Where there wasn't enough product and, uh, but there was demand. For housing, right? So we weren't meeting up with housing. We wanted to be a uh, landlord-friendly state, which Tennessee is. You know, New Jersey, New York, um, not as much. And we wanted to be able to maximize our dollar. What we found is that New Jersey and New York are very good markets, right? A lot of desire for them, but your dollar doesn't go as far, right? So if I buy a hundred-unit building in um, in Tennessee, I might only be able to get a, a forty-unit building in New York. However, it's not a doubling in rent in New York compared to what it is in Tennessee, right? So typically, it's not like two-for-one product where the price does not always mean you get that much more rent. So my dollar was able to go further in other markets, and I was having better rent thresholds where I could get more rent to dollars. So pound for pound, I was getting more with, with my dollar there. I was also getting exposed to newer product, where New Jersey, New York, typically older product, higher taxes... Worse infrastructure, you know, worse utilities. So it would cost more to operate these properties here. So we started really sizing out into markets, Louisville, Kentucky being one, Atlanta, Georgia, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, we still have some other, you know, just kind of one-off properties, one in Eastern PA. We have one in Little Rock, Arkansas, but mainly we're in Nashville, Tennessee, Atlanta, Georgia, and Louisville, Kentucky. And what this allows us to do is get very specific. And just like anything in business, like Specificity can win very quickly compared to being broad. If you're going out there to an audience and you're just going out to everybody, then you don't know who you're actually targeting. We go into select cities and we're very, very, very critical of where we're investing even within that city. So although we're investing in Nashville, currently I'm not in Chattanooga, I'm not in Memphis, I'm not in Clarksville, I'm just investing in Nashville, Tennessee. And when we do that, we get very honed in on what we want. And we can also create the right team and ecosystem around us to help us not only find the product, but make sure when we do that we have the best course forward with that product. That's well said. Hey, Kings, Queens and Royalty, this is going to be in the show notes, sevenfiguremultifamily.com. And something as simple as what you said, deciding which market is good for you. The audience knows I have a love affair with New York City, but with this particular topic, you have to be honest. If you're trying to invest with something with the dollars you have, you have to look at how far it goes. And it might mean you have to go to another city. We saw what happened with a lot of New Yorkers going down to Florida, for example. Now Florida's priced up. Parts of Florida that were maybe significantly lower are now priced up. And I'm not talking about the Miami and the Orlando, or the big parts. It's these, these adjacent areas to yourself, maybe Tampa and all those type of spots. And, and that's, I'm guessing that those are the strategies that your mastermind is going to provide where you can look for the adjacent spots and move beyond just the trendy areas and see an opportunity before maybe others see it. Correct. And I mean, you can win in any market. So we help to identify because usually where people fall short is they try to be everywhere. It's the master of none. 
everything looks like a good opportunity if you're just looking at everywhere. So if I was to send you an apartment building in, in New York City or Chicago or Boise, Idaho, or, you know, just pick a market, it might look like a good opportunity because you have no insight into that market. You can't tell what it truly is. And it usually keeps you further and further from the goal you want. But if you get into just say Nashville and Tennessee, sure, there may be more or say less deals that come across your desk. However, you're going to very quickly know what does and doesn't work. So you're going to be able to act much quicker. And you're going to be able to beat other people to the punch to get what you want. Appreciate that. Now, this is going to be fun. I'm anticipating the demand from the users. This 100-mile mindset of yours, you break it down. You actually just mentioned you have a lot of entrepreneurs who reach out and they're just like, where do I start, right? And, and in most things in life, the question always seems to need to be answered before you're able to go. But you learn the questions by doing. And so on most points, we always want the perfect route before we get started. And it either keeps us from ever getting started or the second we start, right? It's like Mike Tyson can punch in the face, all plans out, out the window, right? And so everything falls apart and you, and you say, oh man, when you realize you've just wasted all that time putting together a plan that was full, failed from the start. So I run a lot. I started running um, marathons back like 2009, run dozens of them now. And I found into ultramarathoning um, back about say, kind of in the, the same realm when we started investing in apartment buildings. And I learned with that is that Running a marathon, you can do a marathon race up and you start maybe running a couple 20 miles before you do the marathon. Well, coming into a 100-mile race, you couldn't do some 80 miles before, right? It just wasn't going to be feasible. So how do you plan for that? I was like, well, the only thing I can do is just be consistent in my day and my outcome. So I realized that getting up every morning, running six miles, whether it's cold, hot, my ear hurt, didn't feel well, Every single day was going to set my mind in the, in the place that I was going to do regardless if it felt right today. And that put me into the mindset that not everything is going to be perfect, but you still go out there and show up and get it done. And when I ran my first 50 mile, you know, I came out of the gate having a plan, right? And this plan was run the uphills and don't get my feet wet. Third mile in, it was too steep to run the uphill. Fourth mile in was the first of four rivers we had across, right? So I was like, okay. New plan, no plan. Get out there and figure it out and learn better questions and better questions get you to better answers. So when I went into my 100-mile race, my first one, I said, okay, I don't know how it's going to feel to run 100 miles. And if I think, oh man, I got to run 100 miles today, I'm going to find every excuse not to do it because that's what we do. We scare ourselves because of all the things that can possibly come up. But what can I do to just get myself out of the gate? Well, I know how to run five miles. So maybe I can just run five miles and get to the first drink station and then just see how I feel and just figure it out from there, right? So I'd run five miles. Okay, well, I'm at five miles. Well, maybe I'll just run another five to the next drink station. Okay, I'm there. Well, maybe I'll run another 10 miles to the hill. Okay, I ran to the hill. Now, can I just run 10 more miles in the next drink station and five miles the next one? It might be another 500 steps. And then can I just run 200 steps? Hey, can I just run to the bush? Can I just run to the next tunnel and the little bridge? And lo and behold, you look back and you're at 100 miles accomplished one mile at a time by getting to certain points and finding out the next question you have to ask to get to the next result. And that's everything that I found in entrepreneurship is that if I don't have the result I want, it's because I haven't figured out the right question to ask to get me the answer that I need to get there. And thinking about it on the sideline, staying on the sideline is the result of you not getting to where you want because the activity leads you to those answers. So whether you should be in property now or stocks or crypto, I don't know that answer. 
But I tell you right now today, pick one of them, go take your first step. And you might very clearly say, this isn't for me. And now at least you know, or maybe you fall in the right pattern of like, yep, I should be here. And then you're on the path. But thinking about it, you've never gotten to your victory by thinking about it. I love that so much because like you, I'm an, I'm an athlete in my sports or basketball, you can see over there. I mean, I also ran track in long distance, short distance, and it's, uh, it's a different mindset. I did the rare thing when you're running both. When you're running the short distance, you know what you have to do. It's the burst of energy, the 60 miles and 100 miles, boom, 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 boom. And then there's the 1500 and you, you're going even further. You can't have that same strategy of bursting through first lap and thinking that you're going to have enough energy. You have to be able to deal with the obstacles. It might be a cramp. It might be your shortness of breath. It might be another opponent. They gamed it a little differently and they have a certain burst of energy. And so you then learn what you need to do with your your lactic acid and, and what you need to do with, with all of that, or maybe cut weight in some area. And, and it's fascinating how that mirrors life in so many areas. Many people, I think, are approaching life with that sprint mindset without understanding that the idea of marathons is really just you pacing yourself, seeing how you react to certain obstacles, reflecting on what you're learning about yourself and the environment, and then making a decision based on that. And then you're just going on and on and on. I don't know. I love metaphors, but that's what I was thinking of when you were saying that. We've gotten into this social media life where we assume that everything has happened immediately and we missed the whole road that's been taken to get there, right? So it's like the band that's ultimately just a huge success, but I spent 20 years like rolling around in a little like buggy going from a little back end little job to the next one, right? And so when we can put in our mind that we see these goals as like, that's the ultimate part of me. And then when I'm done, right? Like, so if I just made a million dollars, like, it's not like you get to a million dollars and you stop. Oh, I made a million dollars. So now everything stops. Life goes on. These are just mile markers that we're continuing to go from. And so if we can stop putting all the effort on thinking about the result and thinking about the journey you're on, because you're on the journey constantly. The journey doesn't stop. So like today, the journey's over, right? You're constantly on that journey. And you find that when you get there, ultimately, by the time you get to that goal, you're ready for the next one. Like that goal has now become small in terms of your evolution. So if we can put more into our steps and less into the results, you'll find that the progress, it's like losing weight, right? Like, oh, I need to lose 30 pounds, right? So we go out there and kill ourselves in the gym for four hours and then can't walk for three days and then they don't go back. But you say, okay, well, I can barely walk around the blocks so and maybe I should just walk down to the end of the street today and then walk back. Okay, that's a success. Maybe tomorrow I can go another 20 feet, right? And if you think about that day in and day out, all of a sudden your results start happening because it's no longer in, I need to be 30 pounds less. Exactly. That's the diet aspect of it too. So your diet is what you put in your mind and the people you surround yourself with. This is very fascinating. Okay. Last question is my mission statement. Reframe this a question. My mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So how do you, Jason, use your difference to make a difference? I can't control other people's actions, but I can control my actions and I control how I show up. And how I show up is going to constantly be whether I'm here today on a podcast or in the dark at 4.30 a.m. working out right in the garage or running. I'm going to consistently show up as me and hope to put forward that this version of me can be an example of what can be done when you set your mind to it. And it's more the narrative of saying that life shouldn't be easy because if you constantly are seeking the easy, then it's going to be a hard life. However, if you go out there and push yourself constantly, you'll find the hard things that come up in life are a lot easier than you thought they'd be because you always put yourself in a position to constantly be testing yourself for that next part that comes up to you. 
Thank you so much. Well, Jason Yarusi is the name. Sevenfiguremultifamily.com is the website. Both will be put in the show notes. And I'm really, really, really grateful and honored that you took time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with us today and educate us on a great way to build some income. Thank you. Very excited. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure's mine. Kings, queens, and royalty. Until next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 